You're listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We continue only with your help. Visit mortificationofspin.org to make a donation or call 1-800-488-1888. That's 800-488-1888. Well, it's great to be back in the uh, underground bunker with my friends Todd and Amy. Uh, Todd, uh, we discussing women in combat a couple of weeks ago. We were. Have you excommunicated any patriotic (laughs) ladies who've been giving for their country recently? I I thought I spied in the church a woman with an American flag uh, lapel pin, and I immediately kicked her out of the church for fear that she might be trying to join the military, (laughs) which, of course, is unacceptable. Um, of course, my wife, you know, she, she keeps a gun rack in the back of our truck now that we live in Virginia. And uh, so she's well armed, but she knows uh, no combat unless it's in defense of me. Well, knowing Karen as I do, I'd, you know, being married to you, I think having a gun rack in the back of the car is probably most appropriate. Probably, uh, probably a good idea. I mean, I can, I mean, I'm sure Amy being in West Virginia, which is even more primitive than Virginia. Pretty familiar with, uh, with the yeah, right to bear arms. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. Amy, of course, is a mixed martial artist. Is that right, Amy? <laughs> I just pretend to be one. Mm-hmm. We're still trying to line up that cage match between her and Mark Driscoll. Yeah, she. Uh, <laughs> Hasn't, have to uh, use some of my pressure points. Hasn't happened yet. I'm sure she'll win. That I know. I'm sure she's taller than him. So. Amy is actually registered as an offensive weapon, <laughs> which means that her husband has the only marriage in America protected by the Second Amendment. Oh, that's outstanding. <laughs> it's not so much because of my martial arts skills, though. <laughs> Now, Carl, you actually want to take away Second Amendment rights from Americans, don't you? I do. I, we have in Britain, we, we arm our police with big sticks, and that seems to be perfectly adequate for keeping the peace in, in what is essentially a civilized country. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's right. Um, but I'd, I'd be curious. I'd, I'd be curious. Now, you, you do pay taxes here. I do. I have no representation because I'm a green card, which is an absolute contradiction of the American dream, I have to say. True, true. Well, now you know how the rest of us feel uh, living (laughs) in America and our current political system, so... Well, while we're talking about uh, immigrants to the United States, uh, it's a great pleasure to have joining us today uh, David Wells, who was uh, a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts. David is renowned really over the last 25, 30 years as probably the most significant conservative evangelical commentator on American culture and specifically the culture of American evangelicalism. It's great to have you with us, David. Oh, thank you so much. I, at least I think I'm glad to be with <laughs> you. Now, now, if I, now, David, you've actually pledged allegiance to the flag, is that right? I have. Excellent. I have. And uh, I, I know this is a very difficult thing to do uh, for those who are British. Uh, my good friend Oz Guinness has stoutly refused to do it, uh, but I did. Good for you. Wow. See, I didn't even know. I liked you before this, but now I really like you. <laughs> and Carl- Actually, uh, I am an African-American. That's, yeah. Fantastic. We were going to bring that up. We were going to bring that up. We know it's a sensitive topic, um, but uh, we, we thought about and we're glad you brought it up. But but with the whole citizenship thing, I'm... Carl, we just may replace you with uh, with David Wells. I, I have to say, from a, 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 my green card's coming up for renewal, and I said to my wife, oh. I think I've got another green card. <laughs> I don't think I can claim Social Security age 65 if I'm not a citizen. So, oh, so the likelihood is the, the, the deathbed conversion. Yeah. <laughs> well, the likelihood is the American government will be bankrupt by then anyway, true. so it won't be an issue. <laughs> That's true. Uh, That's true. But, 
Were I to need it, I'm afraid I would just have to, to, to sell out. Mm. Now, David, do you regard yourself as a, a – obviously, you, you're a turncoat and a traitor. That you pledge allegiance <laughs> to the, the flag of a foreign nation. But in your heart of hearts, would you regard yourself as a Rhodesian or a Zimbabwean? Uh, I regard myself uh, as a Rhodesian missionary – to the United States. Ah, Excellent. Ah, Excellent. Bringing the true gospel. That's good. (laughs) Pagan people. (laughs) Now, David, as a younger man, you uh, spent time studying in London. And am I right in saying that you were a house guest of of the late John Stott for for an extended period of time? Uh, That is correct. Um, Actually, uh, I was a student at the University of Cape Town. Um, I was an atheist and a radical, uh, and I heard John Stott uh, speak. Those were the days when in Commonwealth universities, uh, there used to be uh, typically a mission every three years uh, to a university. And this was so at Cape Town, and I heard John uh, speaking about the gospel. It was the first time I had ever heard the gospel. And I came to faith shortly after that. And then when I decided that um, I was leaving Africa, uh, I went to London and decided to look John Stott up. And uh, I did. And he asked me, where are you staying? And I said, well, I don't have anywhere to stay. And it just so happened that there was a vacancy in the rectory where he lived. And so I lived with him for five years. Fantastic. Now, you know that I'm something of a skeptic about John Stott, uh, damaged by the, the English class system, of course, and, uh, and more of a kind of Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer guy. But what would you say to a guy like me I should look to John Stott for, if you were trying to persuade me that, yeah, there's stuff of real value here beyond his obvious and evident personal piety, there's, there's real value in his theological contribution. Where would you direct me? Well, I don't actually disagree with you because I used to uh, attend Lloyd-Jones's church. I was there twice a week. And when I was a very young man, relatively young, uh, it was Jim Packer who really theologized me. So I I have a great regard for those two. I think um, John Stott's uh, personal integrity in stands out in an age when integrity is sometimes a little hard to find. Hmm. I, I saw him uh, up close. I saw him in public, and I was living in the same house. I saw him in private, and it was exactly the same person. Uh, it was total uh, integrity. I think with respect to where we might learn from him, uh, I, I just happened right now to be working on some Bible studies uh, for Rafiki, which is um, it's a missionary organization uh, that's building orphanages in Africa. And we are uh, producing Bible studies, commentary with questions for our orphans and indeed many others uh, in Africa. And I just happened to have Uh, taken on the responsibility of Romans while also doing uh, the general editing work. 
And I must say, uh, of the commentaries that I have worked with, and I have a great regard for John Murray's and Charles Hodges, but I do do think that John Stott's is really quite luminous and helpful. Mm-hmm. And so, really, John Stott's contribution, and this is not a bad thing at all, has less to do with systematics or dogmatics, but much more with just uh, the exposition of Scripture, and as yes. well as his evangelistic passion, which was evident. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting, David, because I, I, I've used John Stott kind of as an example um, over the last few years in conversations with people about the state of evangelicalism, particularly in regard to this idea of, of evangelicalism's big, big tent, so to speak. And I, I think it could probably rightly be said that back in the 70s, um, big tent evangelicalism meant John Stott, but it came to mean something much more broad uh, by the 1990s and, and early 2000s, so that evangelicalism began to include men like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and, and that sort of thing. I, I wonder, what are your thoughts in regard to uh, the tent of evangelicalism? Is there an evangelical center? I, I think certainly there, there was a more discernible evangelical center back in the, in the 70s than there is now. What are your thoughts in regard to that? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, in the 70s, and in fact, earlier yet in the 60s and 50s, coming out after the Second World War, evangelicalism was small, and it did indeed have a center, and uh, its center was in the people who who were leading it. I'm thinking of uh, Carl Henry and uh, certainly John Stott and Lloyd-Jones in Britain and Packer uh, and people like that. There was an informal, an informal sort of doctrinal coherence to it. I think you get this reflected, for example, in the Lausanne Covenant, which Stott was a principal drafter of, not the only one. Obviously, other people contributed, like Francis Schaeffer and so on, who were uh, there at uh, Lausanne 1. But there was this sort of informal doctrinal fabric. Now, whether that could have been sustained over a period of time had evangelicalism not stumbled terribly uh, into into a cultural morass as it has. I really don't know. Uh, inherent in that um, evangelical coalition was a kind of tacit agreement that uh, there would be certain central things that would hold everybody together and there would be an agreement to differ on things that were peripheral. But that's very hard to hold together because mm-hmm. what's central and what's peripheral? Right. And and the the ease with which people came to transfer what was central to what was peripheral and the ease with which uh, you have uh, parachurch groups uh, as it were, circumventing the church right. and then 
in time replacing the church meant inevitably that this evangelical coalition, as it was, was just not going to hold together. So uh, is it even possible now to have an evangelical coalition that isn't inevitably going to go off the rails? Is, Is that possible now? I, I think the coalition, I think to work, I think the coalition has to be of a different kind. I, I can see the possibility uh, of people who in themselves may have uh, very uh, clear convictions on this or that, nevertheless coming together uh, for uh, a common action of some kind. I can see that. But to put together an, an evangelical movement of, of all of the people uh, who think of themselves as being evangelical, which retains any kind, any semblance of, of doctrinal coherence, I, I think is simply an impossibility. What I meant by, by saying a coalition, for example, uh, I have marched against abortion. I marched with probably Catholics. Uh, I don't know who the people were, but I could see common action of that kind. It's, it's a very uh, sort of limited engagement with you, which you have. There's, there's uh, no pretense that you are in agreement with uh, on a whole range of topics. You, you're simply in agreement with what is uh, a horrible practice mm-hmm. uh, which you want to contest. Right, right. So I can see that sort of coalition. But I, I think the days of, of uh, the grand post-World War evangelical coalition, uh, where we're all under the same tent, I, I think those are probably done. Yeah. Dr. Wells, um, in your book, God in the Whirlwind, two things that you really seem to hold together in importance is God's holy love. And I really, um, I'm really thankful what you wrote in there about that because it seems like in evangelicalism today, people want to either um, hold God's holiness up against his love or his love up against his holiness. Mm-hmm. Um why do you think that is, that we want, tend to move to one side or the other side? Well, I think, um, I think that our culture, and in fact, if I can use a biblical term, which has now <laughs> gone out of fashion, I think our worldliness, that is the fact that we are enculturated, really contributes a lot to this, because uh, we... in in our in our thinking, we have often moved out of the moral world uh, that the Bible inhabits, and and we have gone perhaps unknowingly much more into a therapeutic world. And therefore, when people think about the love of God, uh, both in the church and out. When they think about the love of God, they're thinking about inward balm, inward comfort, Mm -hmm. uh, God being there for me when I feel alone or distraught or troubled, 
and so on. It's it's really uh, therapy that people want. I, I think pastors they they understand this uh, because and and often succumb to it uh, because when people come into the church on Sunday, they know that many of those people have come from a world that's often harsh, uh, from broken relationships, uh, financial worries. Uh, Some people carry inordinate burdens in their work, and they come into church on Sunday, and they they just want a little inspiration. They, They just want a lift. Even if it's just for a few minutes, they want to leave church feeling better than when they came in. And that is all understood in terms of the love of God. This is what the love of God will do. Well, uh, undoubtedly, uh, God in his love is, is extremely patient and gracious toward us, but we never encounter his love except in its bond with uh, his holiness. And therefore, uh, his love is always concerned with what is morally right. Uh, it's, it's not simply therapy, uh, but it is, it is that wholeness that comes from living before God in his holiness that love is concerned with. What I love about the book is that you show how God's holy love is displayed so well in Christ. And so as you're talking pastorally there, I just can't help but think of, you know, the pastor's job in in giving us Christ. Um, To be Christological in your sermon then would give us God's holy love and would lead us, you know, first it would give us the theology that we need. But then like your book, that leads us to to praise and to worship. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, this is exactly right. Um, You have in the Old Testament uh, many statements about uh, God's loving kindness, his patience, uh, and implied in it all his grace. But what we see uh, in the person of Christ, we, we see this holy love, as it were, personified and living in in the midst of life with its tensions and its evil. And then in the cross, we see the awful price that has to be paid uh, if Christ is to bear our sin and make it his own. And we see the love that drew him from above, John's language, sent into the world, uh, to bear that cost. So in Christ's life, and then in particular in his death, where his love provides what the holiness of God requires, uh, we, we see, as it were, the sort of white-hot center of holiness in its bond to love and how this worked out. I love how you say Christianity isn't just about Christ. It's about this Christ. And I think that's what, you know, one of the huge problems in the big tent evangelicalism is, is that um, there's so many different voices trying to define who Christ is. And we've really lost um, the scriptural identity that we're given. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, isn't it 
isn't this a strange conversation when you think about it? Because <laughs> what, what, what I long for doesn't seem to me to be so unusual. I, I, I just long for a church that has authenticity, uh, that is Christ-focused and therefore God-centered, uh, in which men and women live in the presence of God uh, and therefore become uh, think seriously about life, because you, you cannot know God in any depth at all and, and not have serious thoughts about life, because so much of it uh, contradicts, contravenes God and his will. So it should be that in church on Sunday, uh, the deepest, the profoundest thoughts about life are heard there, not, not in the evening news or in the New York Times. Uh, it's, it's that kind of seriousness, uh, not joylessness, but a seriousness that itself in the presence of God is joyful. That, that's what I, I would just long to see in churches, but it sounds so strange to say things like this. <laughs> So, David, as we start to wrap things up here, uh, I, you and I have disagreed about this in the past because I remember, I think I alluded to you in a review as, as a pessimist, and you <laughs> fired back pretty vigorously on that one. Hey, I'm, I'm a bald, middle-aged, bitter guy. I'm quite proud of my, my inner pessimist, but clearly uh, it jars with you. Uh, can you in 30 seconds persuade me that you're not a pessimist? Yes, pessimist and optimist has to do with temperament. Uh, some people by temperament are pessimists, things are always half empty. Uh, some by temperament are optimists, half full. Uh, uh, it inclines us to see things in certain ways and not see other things. But the fact that you can see the unraveling of the culture does not make you a pessimist. I believe in the power of God uh, to redeem human life. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to reform the church, uh, to reform it, even given its flaws and its weaknesses uh, a, a, as we see today. So you might say that in terms of the work of God, I, I am an optimist. Uh, I do not see uh, the building of a Christendom uh, if, if I were thinking in that vein, uh, I would indeed be very pessimistic. But I am uh, enthusiastic and, and, and optimistic about the work of God through Christ and the gospel. That's a great answer, David. Well, thanks ever so much for being our guest today on the oh, uh, show. Uh, want it's to, been my pleasure. Well, we want to... Uh, uh, commend your new book God in the yes. Whirlwind to our listeners it's published by Crossway and we have a number of free copies to give away if uh, people will visit our website and see how to uh, enter a draw for uh, a copy of that but once again thanks ever so much for joining us David yes. this has been The Mortification of Spin and we'll see you all next time This has been Mortification of Spin a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals We'd like to give you a free resource. 
Visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to find a link to the download. Mortification of Spin is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Alliance ministries include Reformation21.org and events held from Florida to Sacramento. To learn more about the Alliance, visit AllianceNet.org or call 800-488-1888. We can only continue to bring you Mortification of Spin with your support. To make a donation, please visit mortificationofspin.org or call 800-488-1888. Please listen again, and don't forget your free download. Become an American citizen, Carl. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> if I do, I won't tell anybody. <laughs>